What are fava beans? Are they a specific type of bean, or is it a preparation of bean? I think it's a type of bean. I'm actually going to look it up. Give it the old Google. Fava bean. It is a type of bean. Also known as the horse bean. Oh! <laughs> Why does the energy feel so off tonight? I don't know! Huh. Maybe we need to commit a murder. We need a primer. We need a theme song. We do need a theme we song. We need a theme song for this, our podcast. <laughs> Soon to be a major motion podcast. With your hosts, the Becks, Cody Beck. Billy Beck. And uh, what was our... Well, let's... They, they can read the title of the podcast. It's not... It's not a secret what we're talking about. <laughs> if you if you somehow are listening to this and don't know, hang tight. We'll let you know. Um, but how was your uh, last two weeks? Last time we spoke, you got hit by a car? Uh, <laughs> yes, I, my car has been returned to me unharmed. I've paid my deductible. Unharmed or, or harms repaired? Because Har- it was definitely harmed. Harms repaired. Vehicle is is now drivable. I had a rental for like five days, and I was terrified the entire time. So, if you don't know, which why would you know? Uh, Cody's car is very small, and her rental was a normal size car, which is too big for Cody. Yes. In LA traffic. So so lore drop. Uh, <laughs> lore drop. I did not have a car for several years because my car was totaled in an accident that was deemed to be my fault, but was not my fault. So when I got a new car, I got the tiniest possible car. And it was still too big for that parking space. No, it wasn't. The other person's car was just too big. Oh, the convicted sex offender? Yeah, that guy. Mm. Um, allegedly. Speaking of convicted sex offenders. How was my week? Wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. I was going to segue into our book, but how was your week? No, I just almost died of the Rona, which apparently isn't a thing anymore, according to the government. I didn't get the memo. Yeah, William, the pandemic is over. No, I I had a wonderful week off of work, laying in bed, and then the couch, and then back in bed, alternating between being too hot and too cold. Had no energy to do anything. Like, recording the podcast sapped my energy for a full day last last time around. But I'm, I'm better now. Healthy. Ready to talk about a piece of fiction. What is the piece of fiction that we are discussing? We are discussing the Oscar award-winning book, The Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> Written by Jonathan Demme. <laughs> <laughs> Written by Thomas Harris, and uh, the movie was directed by Jonathan Demme. What's your uh, history with? Honestly, I had no history with either of these um, beyond being on Tumblr uh, in the mid-aughts and late 2010s uh, when the Hannibal TV show was a thing. Oh, so you got the uh, the AO3 side of everything. Yes. The fanfic side. Although, apparently the TV show is exactly as gay as you think it is. Oh, good. Because I just remember seeing multiple posts that were like, I thought y'all were kidding. <laughs> uh, but no, that's actually, the Hannibal TV show is either a prequel to or based on the first novel in this series, uh, Red Dragon, because The Silence of the Lambs is actually book two in the Hannibal Lecter series yes my history with uh i've never read the book 
I knew of the movie. It was I was two years old when it came out. Like they legit started shooting a week after I was born. So I knew it by pop culture references. Yep. I knew it by Simpsons references. I knew it by kids in like elementary or middle school had seen it and they would quote the fava beans line and I think like Red Dragon came out in two thousand two. So I was in middle school and the zeitgeist, it was back in the zeitgeist, so my friends were seeing it and telling me about a scene where he makes a guy eat his brain and didn't actually see the movie, I think, until college. Um, I had a poster on my wall. Um, it wasn't a Scarface poster, it wasn't the two naked ladies cuddling, and it wasn't the, the naked butts with the Pink Floyd albums posters, which is the holy trinity of college dorm room posters. For men. It was... A list of 101 greatest film quotes. And I believe the quote from Silence of the Lambs was, A census taker tried to test me once. I ate his liver be I ate his liver beans. <laughs> I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. The <laughs> wasn't on the poster. <laughs> I don't think they knew how to spell it. But I, I would look at that. And I had heard through just random reading on the internet that it was like the first horror sequel to win an Oscar because technically they made the first book in the series as Manhunter in like 1984 mm -hmm. and then they did Silence of the Lambs and then they went and revisited with Anthony Hopkins later but no that's how I that's how I came to learn about this movie now I've seen it probably a dozen times I have, I think the first time I saw the movie was probably in this apartment with you. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, it just, horror was never on my radar. Thrillers were never on my radar. I was aware that it was based on a book, kind of. I don't know if I was ever really aware until, like, later. Um, yeah. Like, when, like, the third sequel came out. That's probably when I realized, oh, this is, these are all based on books. This is all a franchise and not just an Anthony Hopkins, Jodie Foster movie. Yeah, although, I mean, it is that. And it, it is definitely the best of all of them. It is that now, and it should be that forever. Yeah. Dear God, don't remake this Netflix or Paramount or whoever. Don't speak that evil into existence. Uh, oh, the Max original, The Silence mm. of the Lambs, starring Timothy Chalamet and Zendaya. Oh... Oh. Oh. You want to get into it? Yeah. Let's get into it. Let's get into it. You spook easily, Starling. Not yet, sir. He's past the others. The last cell. I'll be watching. You'll do fine. A killer is on the loose. Keeps him alive for three days. Then he shoots them, skins them, and dumps them. A rookie FBI agent is on his trail. He's got real physical strength, cautious, precise, and he's never impulsive. He'll never stop. But in order to track him down, she'll have to match wits. I'll help you catch him, Clary. Believe me, you don't want Hannibal Lecter inside your head. With the darkest of all minds. Just do your job and never forget what he is. But oh, he's a monster. Pure psychopath. So rare to capture one alive. So close to the way you're gonna catch him. Do you realize that? 
Oh, Clarice, your problem is you need to get more fun out of life. You told me you don't spook easily. You call this easy, sir? Lester's missing hand arm. Man's a raving maniac. Who knows what he'll do? So first, <laughs> the famous line that you quoted yes. is not the same in the book. Okay. The famous line in the book is, I ate his liver with some fava beans and a big Amarone. Amarone is a different type of wine. I don't know why they changed it. Big Amarone sounds like something Val Venus would have said about his <laughs> dick in 1999. Yeah, it doesn't. I'm also, I may not be pronouncing it correctly. Um, but yes, it is just a, it is a more specific type of wine. Hello, ladies. You want to take a sip from my big Amarone? <laughs> no. Okay. Me no, neither. I don't. <laughs> so, um... Obviously, the big, the big thing about this that was a, the big thing about this book and movie that was controversial at the time, uh, because this book was published in I believe October of 1988. That sounds right. Yes, this book was published in October 1988. They started filming, like you said, in December 1989. Mm-hmm. They did not waste any time. Oh um, no! But that's not like rare either um in in the same vein is psycho which uh, the book came out in 59 hitchcock read it and then tried to buy up copies so that no one else could read it until his movie came out <laughs> like he was that ready to make that movie um like that's like 2001 a space odyssey like, they were writing it and filming it at the same time like kubrick and were. and clark were communicating that whole process so it's not rare that a book come out and is immediately adapted yeah it just it shocked me because i thought there was at least a decade between the two it kind of feels like there could have been yeah um so we're just gonna get right into it the the thing that everyone always remembers is buffalo bill and his mental mental illness um his gender presentation and Something that the book goes into, which we actually watched a little, um, we watched a... Yeah, uh, so I have the Criterion Collection release of this on Blu-ray, and one of the supplements is an episode of a 2002 TV show called Page to Screen about the Silence of the Lambs. So we actually sat down and watched that just as a primer. We're doing things a little different today. I took notes differently. We'll get into it. Um, but we sat down and we watched that together over dinner tonight, and they went into, very briefly, very briefly, the controversy when the film came out. Um, yes. Gay rights groups would protest this film because the only representation at the time was, you know, villains. Um, yeah. Queer and folk also, were never the heroes, they were always the bad guys. This also would have been deep in the AIDS crisis. Exactly. Two years later, Jonathan Demme himself made Philadelphia. 
Oh, which okay. was the first like big budget AIDS movie. Like Tom Hanks had AIDS in that movie. It was a big deal, and it was it was actually a big turning point in, in public perception of the crisis. The in the from page to screen episode that we watched, they actually the screenwriter actually talked about how the sacrifices that they made to turn this into a movie. One of the things that they sacrificed was the study and um, kind of the delving into the point of view of Buffalo Bill and where his um, his stuff came from. Um, and he regret they regretted it now. Um, mm-hmm. and now being at the time that they talked about it because they didn't intend to make it that way. It was just they wanted to focus on Clarice and for time they had to cut some stuff and they picked that. Over and over again, also in the From Page to Screen episode, they talk about how much research Thomas Harris does. It took him six years after he wrote Red Dragon to write this book because of all of the research that he does. He, in this book, goes over and over again, like multiple times through the points of view of different characters, he over and over again says, this is not trigger warning, content warning for outdated language. I'm quoting from the book. Um, He over and over again, they go out of their way to say that Buffalo Bill is not a transsexual. He is not an individual who is gendered on conforming. He just thinks he is. Mm -hmm. And my take on that is that, it kind of doesn't matter. Yeah, like the some of that carried over in the film. Um, Demi definitely went for the same level of authenticity as Harris did. They shot at the actual FBI Academy. Um, they based a lot of the sets off blueprints that Harris himself yeah. drew. And there was, like they trimmed down a lot of Buffalo Bill's backstory. But yeah. they still had a line in there where Lecter specified... He's not a transsexual. Again, that's the language used in the film. Um, he's just so mentally ill, he doesn't know what he is and thinks he's trans. The thing that, when I say it doesn't matter, I mean, when you are por- choosing to portray an individual, whether they are trans or not, when you put that identity on them, it doesn't matter what your effect is if or what your intent is if the only effect is going to be remembering this villain is trans. Yeah. Like, it's so easy to miss that one line of dialogue when the character's not on screen. I don't think you've even seen him yet when that dialogue is spoken. I want to say it's the first meeting with Clarice and Lecter. Yeah. And I don't think we see Bill yet, at least not the extent of who Bill is. Yeah. So yeah, what what you're saying, like, I I can completely understand how an average American can come out of that movie and go, like, run into an everyday trans person on the street and go, ooh, does that guy wearing a dress holding a poodle have a girl locked up in a well in his basement? Yeah. Or also, like, when you are lumping mental illness and trans, if the transness is a symptom of the mental illness, you're linking them anyway. So mm-hmm. I think that ultimately that's still harmful. And that's outdated language that we're still trying to shake off as a society yeah. now. There's still that debate as states are limiting and closing off access to 
gender affirming care from trans individuals. Which that's a, a fascinating thing that they go through in the book is that there's an actual scene between Crawford and the head of Johns Hopkins mm-hmm. uh, trans care, uh, gender care, where he's like, I'm not going to break patient privacy to give you information about these people. He's like, they, we just got this, we just got this destigmatized. Yeah. Um, and like, a lot of people think trans is a new thing because it's it's more publicly acceptable now than it was 30 years ago when this movie came out um that you know the boston children's hospital famously has i don't know i don't even think they've done gender affirming care but they handle trans youth i believe i don't want to i don't want to speak something that's incorrect considering the bomb threats they've gotten over what they do do um I, yeah, I think it's one of those things where they, the implication is that trans kids can go there to get regular health care, yeah, not that's, like not even gender affirming care. Exactly, and that's such a, a norm in hospitals around the country now. When this movie came out, I think they specify there are three hospitals that do any sort of gender affirming care in the country. It was John Hops- Hopkins and two others that I did not write down. Yeah, I also didn't um, write them down, but you're correct. But the scene, the scene you're referring to happens off screen where he contacts all of them to see if there's a name that gets yeah. rejected. And that's the, also the scene where Crawford is like, well, that's what I'm telling you. You wouldn't have admitted him because he is not trans. Yep. The other thing that's really interesting um, is that Lecter always uses male pronouns when he refers to Buffalo Bill. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those things where I think... Hannibal is the type of person, even though he is a monster, he he's literally not that eats kind people. Of, <laughs> yes, he's not that kind of monster. I think if he genuinely thought that Buffalo Bill was a trans woman, he would use female pronouns for her. Oh, absolutely. But he doesn't think that, so he doesn't. Yeah, he doesn't care about pronouns because the meat tastes the same. Exactly. Sorry, I'm going to make a lot of dark jokes during this because it's a Does dark he... movie. Actually, I don't think Hannibal eats a single woman in this movie. No, he does. He does. He does. The nurse. That's the reason he's in the special thing. Yes, 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 yes. They mentioned that uh, he faked a heart attack? Yes. And then ate a nurse's face. That's the only woman that we hear that he uh, eats. Everyone else that we hear about is a man. Um, so the other thing that's so fascinating is that I feel like I kind of understand where you're getting at, where the author, what the author was getting at with the having a a protagonist or a an antagonist who is neither male nor female, but both or neither, mm-hmm. um, is that gender roles are like he plays with gender and gender expectation, gender roles in your main characters. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, let's talk about that um, because Jodie Foster. <clears throat> Uh, who plays Clarice, if you didn't know. I, I did. I'm familiar <laughs> with the seminal role. Taxi driver? Um, but Jodie Foster, one of the reasons she most wanted to do this role is because it was a female character that she could play that wasn't a victim. There's no sex in the movie. There um, is... No, no, ex- like, the movie gets sexual at times, but there's no, like, explicit... Acts of sex happening on screen, I guess. Yes. There's no sex in the book either. There is an implied sex scene that you see her after. Um, the very end. The end of the book is her in bed sleeping 
um, next to a guy. And you don't see sex. It's not even hinted at. The only implication that they had sex is a conversation she has with her roommate. Um, but she has kind of like a love interest in the book. Okay. she She's in love with her job in the movie for the yeah. most part. And I think that's, that's a good um, way to streamline the film. Yeah. Because her goal is, well, as um, Lecter puts it, advancement in yeah. their first meeting. But her goal is to graduate from the FBI Academy to solve this kind of crime. And she has an opportunity to do one now, so that's her goal. Like, she's not distracted by these other things. She doesn't need a man to help her either. Mm-hmm. She can just be a good FBI agent. Well, I think that's also something that they play with in the book, is that she keeps hitting these walls with these different men. And every time she has to be helped over the wall, not because she's not skilled enough at her job, but because it's an old boys club. Yeah. Um, There are two shots in the movie that I want to talk about related to that. Mm -hmm. One is towards the beginning. um, The opening shot, she's running through the woods. And knowing this is a slasher movie, the image of a woman running through the woods in a slasher movie is a very specific image. So to open with that, with like a tense, haunting score underneath, and it not be her running from a slasher, she's training. She's just doing the obstacle course, I believe, on her own time. Because she runs by groups of men and women also running it. But she's alone in the opening scene. But the very specific shot is she's called up to Crawford's office, the uh, head of the academy. Yes. And she gets in an elevator. She's in her sweat. She's sweaty. She just got done running. And five foot three Jodie Foster is just surrounded by twelve like six four dudes, <laughs> and it's such a jarring shot. The juxtaposition of like this small—I I hesitate to use the word frail—but no. in that context, she appears frail. Yeah, like it's it, there's almost a tension there, even though she's in a safe space. She's at school. She's around friendlies, you know. Yeah. Um, the second scene is when they go to West Virginia and they're at a funeral home. Um, she's there with Crawford and they go into a room full of local PD and it's the same thing. It's all like six, two men and little Jody Foster and the sheriff even pulls Crawford, no, sorry, Crawford pulls the sheriff aside to talk about the nature of the crime because there's female ears nearby, they need to protect her. Completely missing the fact that she's there to work on the case and she needs this information. In the book, she actually calls Crawford out for that. She does in the movie as well. Okay. Um, I couldn't. I didn't remember if that was a scene. He he recognize. He actually recognizes that he fucked up. Yeah. And her quote is, "It matters. Cops look at you to see how to act." Yes. And that's a very powerful moment for that character. It's also really interesting because I don't know if this is something that they considered when they were casting her, but the character of Clarice Starling has a, she is supposed to have a thick Southern drawl, like that she is actively fighting. Her roommate Mm -hmm. draws attention to it 
because there's a point where she's calling, she has to call a junkyard in Arkansas because she's looking for a car. Mm -hmm. And she slips into that accent to talk to them. And it actually talks about how she consciously uses that accent to get in with this Arkansas car dealer because she knows it will get her what she wants. So that's in the movie. It's not It's not in the same scene, but it's there. Uh, her accent's definitely there. The first time she talks to Lecter, he actually mocks her accent. Um, yes. We saw that scene in that page-to-screen episode. Yes. Um, and it was apparently Anthony Hopkins half-fucking with Jodie Foster. Yeah. But it worked so well as a character beat mm-hmm. that they kept it in. Um, the other time is that same scene when they're with the West Virginia cops. Because she's the... the oh, I said the son. She's the daughter of a West Virginia cop. Yep. And he died, I believe, in the line of duty. It's not clear in the film. Yes, he was. It's it's a little unclear in the book as well what exactly he was doing, but um, he was on some sort of patrol, and his I believe she describes it as his gun got stuck. Like he was mm. he was like cocking the shotgun and it got stuck and missed. So the the people that he was trying to stop knew that he couldn't fire at them, so they shot him. Okay. Um. I don't think that needed to be in the movie. That's a good cut, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, but It's in, just one of the things she gives Lecter. Mm-hmm. In that scene, we're reminded of her father just before. Um, she, like, in her head walks up to the casket, because they're in a funeral home, and sees her father in that, and the camera cuts back, and it, it's a child, Clarice. Mm-hmm. And then she snaps out of it, and she's in the room with the cops again. And they need to autopsy uh, one of the bodies they just found. Yes, I believe that's Kimberly. I'm not sure. It's the only autopsy in the movie? Yes. It's Um, the only one in the book as well. Okay. So what she does is she brings back that West Virginia accent and starts talking directly to the cops using cop language that you know she got from her dad. Basically saying, hey, you did everything you could. You helped her out. Now's the time for us to take over, do our job. You guys did good work here. You helped the families out. Now go home and get some rest to be with your families. And she says it in such a way in the right accent that those guys recognize, okay, she, we trust her. She knows what she's doing. She's She's got the... She's one of us, basically. Yeah. That's also put in the book as um, she's tapping into... Like, there's a lot of interesting... So you know how I've talked about before how books will go into that sort of limited omniscience Mm -hmm. or complete omniscient um, tense? There's a lot of like in and out with that where sometimes it keeps you unsettled as the reader Mm -hmm. because sometimes... Thomas Harris is speaking to you as the reader, and sometimes it's in Jody's head or um, in Clarice's head, and sometimes it's in Crawford's head. Um, some, but you're never in Lecter's head. You never get to be in Lecter's head, but you get to be in everybody else's. But um, in that scene, it's actually one of those sort of omniscient point of views where he's talking to you as the reader, and he's talking about how her. Being a woman and being there and recognizing what she needs to tap into, she's tapping into that sort of southern hospitality, like, you listen to your mama type of vibe. And it also talks about how, like, in the South, there's this tradition of the women are the ones who prepare the body. The, women's are, the women are the ones who deal with all the funeral arrangements, that kind of thing. And, like, that's what she's tapping into there. Mm-hmm. And she does it consciously. Because yeah. she's, she wants to get them all out of the room and she knows she can't do it the same way Crawford would. She knows she can't do it the same way a man would. So she taps into that. Yeah. But yeah, she, she's code switching. Yeah. To help advance 
uh, to, to help get more information and help advance. I don't want to say advance the plot. That's not what she's doing. Yeah. She's using all of the tools at her. To, and that's actually something that is brought up in the book is that the reason that she needs to be on this case is because she's when she's thinking about um, she has the option to decline. Like she always has the mm-hmm. option to decline. And she chooses to go because she knows that she's the only woman that is going to touch these women's bodies after they're dead. And she's the only one that is going to give them the respect that they deserve. Mm -hmm. And that's why she goes to, in the end, when you're getting towards the climax, that's why she goes to the first victim, uh, Frederica or Federica Himmel or Bimmel. That's why she goes back to the first victim. Because she's like, I can step into her bedroom and know about her. And when she does in the film... Her father specifies that cops had been there a dozen times. They can't find anything new. And the first thing she does is she goes in there, looks at her music box, and recognizes there's a secret compartment in here and finds uh, saucy Polaroids she took of herself. That's, um, is that in Federica or is that in... Federica's room. In the book, that's Catherine. Really? She goes to the scene of Catherine's apartment and she finds um, the she finds the Polaroids and she's going to take them with her. And um, that's when she runs into the senator for the first time. And the senator's like, no, I'm going to keep these because she doesn't know what they are. And uh, uh, Clarice doesn't want to hand them over because she knows it's going to be embarrassing, not only for the senator, but also kind of for the cops who missed it. Mm hmm. And she gives them to, finally she gives them to the senator and the senator sees them and she's just kind of like, and she recognizes like after the fact that she has made a mistake, the senator recognizes she has made a mistake in not trusting this cop. Yeah. But she also, Clarice also understands because there's been a parade of cops in and out of her office. That's so redeeming for Clarice in my head. Because in the movie, she pulls the Polaroids out from that hiding spot, flips through them real quick, and then just leaves them out in the open on the music box, and then moves on to the next room. (laughs) It's like, oh, her dad is going to see those. Never knew them before, and have a fucking mental break over that shit. It's the one, like, critique I have of her policing, besides, you know, being a cop, but that's neither here nor there. (laughs) Shoddy police work there, Lou. (laughs) So... Speaking of some characters, because you... Yes. Uh, so you very kindly gave me a homework assignment for this one. I did. Um, you gave me two topics to, to focus on, mm-hmm. uh, gender roles and class roles. Mm-hmm. And you gave me four characters to look at. Yes. So Cody, which characters did you want me to look at and why? So the characters that I gave you, because I didn't remember them from the movie. Okay. Um, in the book you're kind of getting this information um, from Lecter because, like, they go to Lecter because he's a brilliant psychologist and he won't work with anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, like, he's still publishing stuff from prison. I don't know if that's in the movie or not. He's just drawing? In So part of the reason that Chilton is such a dick weasel, to Clarice specifically, but also to Hannibal, is because... Hannibal made an ass out of him because he did like an interview with Chilton when he first got moved into this prison um, or when he was first incarcerated or whatever um, and gave him like all this exclusive information or whatever and then um, published 
another paper with the actual information that he had first and made Hil made Chilton look like a dumb asshole. Later, when Chilton goes around Clarice but and cuts and like tells Hannibal like they lied to you, they don't actually have a deal with the senator, whatever. He gives him the name Billy Rubin as uh, instead of James Gum because he knows from the very beginning he knows who it is and what oh, they're doing. Yeah. He knows him. He knows before Clarice says a word to him what's happening and who it is. Yeah, because he goes. He thinks that Clarice is a pawn sent to him by Crawford, which she is. Yeah, he's um, right. But Clarice doesn't know that. Yeah. At first, she realizes it later. And the first, like one of the first things he asks her is, "Are you here to ask me about Buffalo Bill?" And she's like, "No, I'm not." And he's like, "All right, well, I'm gonna." And he ends the interview by telling her he lives in a two-story house. And you find out that he realizes that, even though he hasn't seen any of the case files because of the way that early victims had been murdered, and they go into the details of how he does it, but it yeah. has to do with having staircase. But yes. um, later in the book, when uh, he gives the false information to Ruth Martin and um, to Chilton, he creates a cipher, basically, based on Chilton's name. And I don't... Un I. I don't know enough about chemistry and science to know the specifics of it, but basically the implication is that Chilton is full of shit. Oh. <laughs> but it's done in, like, scientific notation. Because the only one of those... He does a couple anagrams mm -hmm. in the movie, but the only one like that is the fake name he gives to the senator, which is uh, something friend. Shit. Yeah, in the book, the name It's like he... Lewis Friend or something... Which anagrams to the scientific name for fool's gold? Uh, in the yeah, in the um, in the book, he just straight up gives her a fake name, Billy Rubin. Yeah. Um, and Clarice recognizes that the information he gave was fake because she's like, "You know everything about everyone you've ever met. How can you not? He, if you're saying you don't remember things, that means you're making it up." Mm-hmm. That's part of the reason why Chilton is such a huge dick is because Hannibal is smarter than him, and they both know it. So the reason that he is in prison at all uh, is because he murdered Benjamin Raspail. Yes. Who was in the orchestra. And it is heavily implied, if not outright stated, that he feeds him to the uh, orchestra director and uh, someone else when they come over. And that's what eventually gets him caught. His information that he has about Buffalo Bill slash James Gum is through Raspail. Because James Gum was killing well before he became Buffalo Bill. Yes. He killed Raspail's lover. I'm sorry. Did you say that Lecter killed Raspail? Yes. So, the first time that Lecter and Clarice meet, um, Lecter gives her a name and uses a very specific turn of phrase that's the name of a storage company nearby. So Clarice goes to the storage company and finds that there's a locker there that was bought for 10 years' time, paid 10 years up front, under that fake name. It's Lecter's Locker. So she goes ah. inside, pokes around some of his stuff, and in a car she finds a head in a jar. Yes. That head is Raspail. Lecter explains to her that Raspail was a former patient of his, she assumes he killed him. He says he didn't kill Raspail. He found him that way. He found him uh, that way being with makeup on his face, painted in drag, uh -huh. as if he was used for practice. Mm. 
So he's hinting, and then I think later says outright that Buffalo Bill killed him, like you said, before he was Buffalo Bill. Yes. As, as a practice run for the transformation. Yeah. Um, he hints that Bill and Raspail were together, and that Raspail referred yes. Lecter to him as a doctor, and they only had one session, and then he found Raspail's body. I don't recall if he specifies what happened to the body afterwards. I wouldn't be surprised if it was hinted that he ate him, considering who we know Lecter to be as a person. But in the film, Raspail's not a victim of Lecter's. He's a victim of Bill's. Okay. So that that's actually a way... That makes sense, because it's an extraneous character that you can get rid of, um, mm-hmm. while still including the important elements of the narrative from the book. Exactly. Because the head... That head, you... Um, Klaus's head. Klaus is the guy, Raspail's boyfriend. Because it, it basically what happens is Raspail meet, met Jame in California, um, and he was dating him, and then he broke up with him because he met Klaus, um, and then Jame got really upset that he got dumped, murdered Klaus, and then that was the first time he wore someone else's skin. Okay. And so it's Klaus's head in the jar. It is Klaus's head in the jar, and when they take the head out of the jar... They find the moth. They find the moth. Yes. And that's the first one. It's so... Okay, they condensed those two characters into one then for the film. Yes. Okay. Yeah, but uh, in the book, uh, Lecter actually spikes Russ Bale through the heart. Gross. Yeah. Another character you told me to look at Mm -hmm. was the roommate, Ardelia. Yes. Because I did not remember another woman at all in this movie. So my memory of the movie has always been like Clarice is the only woman. Watching it again, there are women everywhere. They're just never in charge. Okay. Um, Ardelia is in the movie. She isn't named, nor does she have a line of dialogue to like the third act. Like it's not until Lecter escapes. And Clarice has the case file again that they're going through it. And then Ardelia is the one who recognizes, oh, is this Lecter's handwriting? Lecter gave Clarice a note to look at a pattern um, to help her solve the case, basically. He's yeah. leading her along the way that way. But Ardelia is in the movie prior to that. Um, when she's going around the Academy in the opening couple of scenes, there's like a moment where when she's going to meet with Crawford... She, like, high-fives Ardelia walking by, or they have a nod or something like that. Yeah. And then there's another later scene where they're going for a run together, and then a group of guys running, like, gives them the, the old turn and look as they run past, because fucking men. <laughs> Being men. Um, so she's a presence in the movie, and she's not a wasted presence either. Yeah. Because it's very close to that scene in the elevator where she's surrounded by men. It's, like, the next shot. When she walks by Ardelia and has a moment of, like, support. Like, she has a friend who's there and support. She's not alone yeah. at the Academy. The other thing that I feel like is important in both is that Ardelia is uh, black in both. In yes. both the movie and the book. Um, I actually made a note of that, that between Ardelia and Barney, who we'll talk about in a minute, like, Clarice is immediately respected by black people, <laughs> but not by white men. Um, I don't know if there's something there or not. <laughs> it's just something I've noticed. Maybe. Um, but I would just, yeah, presence is a good way to explain her because she is basically a calming presence and a 
a tie to the normal world for Clarice in the book. Um, she She's there a handful of times, and it's always like she's the one kind of um, grounding Clarice. I don't want to say mothering, because that's not... Because then you get in like the problematic mammy role stuff, and that's not what she's doing. Mm-hmm. She's definitely there as a grounding presence and influence and as a friend. Yeah. Um, but it's something that I thought was really interesting reading the book, is that you meet a lot more women than I remember uh, from the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, you spend a pretty significant amount of time uh, comparatively in Catherine's head. And Catherine and Clarice are very similar. Catherine is... I would almost say Catherine is like a, an extension of Clarice in that she is the part of Clarice that is in survival mode. And you can compare... Clarice and her like because she's constantly Clarice is constantly described as like having to bite down on her anger and her actual impulses and present a facade but inside she's like screaming and raging and angry and that's like a pretty classic example of like what you have to do to survive like do what you have to do to survive Mm -hmm. Catherine is literally in a life or death situation yeah and so it's an interesting juxtaposition of those two women and ultimately, like, Clarice is working to save Catherine. Still, she's trying to save Catherine, and Catherine still finds the time to call her a bitch. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, she's been at the bottom of the dark hole for several days. She's like, don't worry, I know you're down there, Catherine. I'm with the FBI. You're safe. Do you know where he is? I gotta leave the room. No, come back, you bitch! <laughs> yes, if you... I believe she calls her shit for brains in the book. <laughs> she might. Yeah. Um, so Ardelia Map, uh, mm-hmm. the next character, which you told me is definitely not in the book or in the movie, is Noble Pilcher. So I didn't say he's not in the movie. Oh, okay. No, because you didn't name him until just now. Oh, I don't yes. know who you're. Is he the one who she's in bed with at the end? Yes. Weird. Yeah. So I had the name Noble Pincher written down. Mm-hmm. And the movie's trucking along. I never hear the name. And then two of my favorite characters appear for their one scene, and it's the guys who are playing chess the with bugs. bugs. Yes. And one of them is Noble Pincher. So I wrote down, bug guy, exclamation point. <laughs> Plays bug chess. That's the notes I have on it. <laughs> he, does, he does turn up at the graduation as well, um, which I guess is odd, not knowing that they're like in a relationship Sort of. He does hit on her at one point, and she calls him out immediately. Yes. And, and that's where the relationship ends in the movie. She still does that in the book. She... Because both of them hit on her in the book in very different ways. Mm. But it's also like... Oh, she gets hit on so much in the movie, too. Every man she meets in this book is gross. Oh, my God. They are all sleazy monsters. The worst is Chilton. Yes. When they're doing the walk down into the basement the first time for Lecter, he's giving her all the rules and stuff, and then they're at the last gate, and she's like, yeah, I don't need you from here on out. If he sees you coming, he might shut me out because he knows we're associated. And he's just like, well, then I just wasted my whole time walking down here. Yes. It's, it is a power struggle between the two of them immediately because he doesn't want to brief her. And finally, when they get there and she's like, when she says that I don't need you, basically, and he's like, well, I wasted my time walking down here. And she's like, if you would have briefed me in my office like I asked you, you wouldn't have wasted your time. Mm-hmm. It's a little different because in the movie, uh, 
he flirts with her in the office. He's like, so you're staying an extra night? I can show you around town. And she's like, no, I'm not. (laughs) And and then at the bottom in the basement, when she finally tells him goodbye and he gets pissy with her, she like flirts back as a survival instinct, which I noticed. She actively does not flirt back in the book, and she she regrets it because she's like, I'm not good at it, but I need his help. Yeah, like, she kind of saves it there in the movie. Uh, I forget exactly what she says, but it's along the line of, like, well, I got to spend some more time with you, to is to not offend. And it, it jumped out at me, especially because you told me to look at gender roles. Like, it's definitely a thing where he was flirting to get some, yeah. whereas her flirting there was not the same reasoning. It was to save his feelings, basically, which really makes me wonder about every time you've ever flirted with me, we're, knowing my fragile ego. We're literally married. Is it? Is it because you don't want me to cry? Is that why you married me? Honey, how many times have I made you cry today? Well, one... <laughs> Shut up! <laughs> why are you being mean? So, um, when she interviews Lecter the second time, do you see her interact with Chilton again? When she, when she comes in, like, late at night? Not that I recall. Okay. There's another scene where the power dynamic between them shifts. When she comes back, when it's, like, an emergency and she's been put on the case, the mm-hmm. Buffalo Bill case, um, she comes in and Chilton's being a little shit, and he makes a slip-up. In the conversation, he says something to the effect of, I'm not at your beck and call. I had a ticket to this show. And it catches on the fact that he says a ticket. And she hears that and he hears that and they basically make eye contact. And she's like, it's described as like in that moment, she saw his whole lonely life. Oh. And he sends her down with um, the guy outside instead of um, with himself because he can't bear to face her. Because she knows, and he knows she knows. Yeah. And he never sees her again until he's bodily dragging her out of the Lecter thing later in yeah, Tennessee. Yeah, when he's in Tennessee. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, Chilton is definitely the worst, but even the guys that are supposed to be on her side, like Crawford, are shitty. Like, the only people, the only guy that's not gross to her is Barney. So, it's funny you mention Crawford even being shitty. Yeah. Because he's kind of not... Like, he is in that one scene that we already talked about when he's like, let's talk about it without a woman present. Yeah. He's generally, generally like, a decent dude to her. He's still, like, in charge, and there's that power dynamic, but I don't think he's ever really shitty to her. But he's also using her as a pawn. At the beginning, yes. But, I mean, he would have used any male student as a pawn if it would have made sense in that situation as well. He's that kind of guy. He yeah. has these students at his, at his, um, not at Beck's disposal. Call, yeah, at his disposal. He, they're available to him to use when he needs to use them. Yeah. Um, but as they get to know each other, it's, it's almost like a father-daughter relationship to okay. an extent. So it, so there's not a weird sexual tension. No. Okay. I, I didn't get that at all. So in the, is there anything with his wife in the movie? No. Okay, in the book, his wife is dying. Like, actively dying of terminal cancer, he is taking care of her at night. Okay. And so everyone that Clarice runs into immediately assumes that she's sleeping with Crawford to get her position. And that's not 
in either of their relationships. Like, she's not attracted to him, he's not attracted to her, but because it's the appearance of a male authority figure and a female student, everyone immediately assumes that she's fucking him to get hmm. the privileges that she's getting. Which it's not even privileges, she's working and also still going to school. That's an interesting dynamic. I feel like they, the filmmakers... We're specifically not trying to do anything like that. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of that was Jody. In the Criterion release, there's like a 30-page booklet with the two discs. It's a pretty big release. Um, there's an essay in there called A Hero of Our Time by Amy Talbin, which goes into Clarice as a character and how she's been kind of neglected by uh, like the cultural zeitgeist since the film's released, in favor of Lecter. Yeah. Lecter got the TV show, Lecter got the sequels, Clarice did not. Yeah. Um, but she goes into how Clarice is a great character. She's not a character who comes out and says, I'm a feminist, but she's a feminist character, for sure. And they describe um, Crawford and Lecter as her dad, basically. Crawford being the good influence and Lecter being the bad influence. Yeah. And sometimes you need both. Just like she has yeah. to rely on her low-class upbringing that she's running away from. Mm-hmm. Um, in is there a scene where she gets semen flicked on her by yes. another inmate? I wrote down the phrase, cum toss. <laughs> so we could talk about the cum toss. So that's at the end of her first uh, yes. interview with Lecter. She's kind of shaken up. and She's shaken up, but not because she... Not because of Lecter. She's shaken up because she feels like she's failed. Yeah. And so the reason, and because she's rattled by feeling like she's failed, that's the only reason she gets, uh, she gets caught by Meg, mm-hmm. uh, Megs or whatever his name is. Um, and he, uh, flicks the semen on her face. With incredible accuracy, like right in the eye. Yeah. And like he's done it before and he'll do it again. No, wait, no. Because she, Hannibal starts calling after her. And the reason she goes back to Hannibal is because he actually has an emotional reaction to that. Yes. He, he reacts not in anger towards him for being an asshole, Migs for being an asshole, but in anger towards his baby being defiled. It's like a very specific kind of... Yes, it's the disrespect. Yes. He's like, I would not have you disrespected. Yes, and he responds by convincing this man to choke on his own tongue. Yes. Yes. Which, wish I could have seen that scene. I want to know how he pulled that off. You don't get to see it in the book either. Oh, that almost makes it worse. He talks to... When Clarice calls him out about that, um, because Crawford calls her into his office and is like... The guy that attacked you is dead. And she's like, oh. And uh, Hannibal is, when she goes to see Hannibal again, because basically she's talking about um, how Crawford's like, they think that you, they think that Hannibal did it, but they can't do anything to prove it. Um, mm-hmm. And so That Hannibal she, killed him? Yes. Oh, they know he did in the movie. Yeah. They specify that he whispered to him all day and then they found him choked on his tongue. So to punish Lecter, they take away his drawings and make him watch evangelical TV. Yes. Which, well, nightmare for me. It's it's not so much that they make him watch it, but they have the um, TV there and the uh, it's just too loud. They turn it down for the interview with Clarice, but they, um, it's implied, like, that's straight up torture. Oh, Absolutely. 
Um, but anyway, we were originally talking about Noble Pilcher. <laughs> we but were. since we brought it up already, um, we've brought his name up a couple times. You got Barney, the orderly. Yes. Who is the only one that, like, can handle Lecter to an extent. Um, and also is, like, the only person that's not a shithead, a shithead to Clarice. Yeah, like, immediately after she flirts back with Chilton to ease him, mm-hmm. Barney just treats her with the utmost respect immediately. Yep. Shows her exactly where he's going to be. The second time she meets with Lecter, he turns the lights on. Mm-hmm. And Lecter even thanks Barney. It's almost like Lecter respects Barney. Yes. And if we're going to spoil our way to the end, um, which we'll talk about the differences in the end yes. in a minute, but Barney accompanies Chilton to the Bahamas at the end. He's there. And I also know he's in the sequels. So I feel like Lecter doesn't get Barney. No, in in the book, um, which we'll get into, in the book, you don't see him or it's not implied that he kills Chilton. He is hiding in a, uh, he's hiding near a specific plastic surgery institute because he is surgically modifying his own face to get Mm -hmm. out of the country. Because he knew at some point he was going to get in trouble. Uh, so he has a stash of all the stuff that he needs. Um, so he's getting a new passport taken. He's got a fake ID. Um, so he, what he's doing while he's waiting for all of this stuff to like settle in and make and like fix it. He writes letters. He writes a letter to Clarice. He does not call her. He writes her a letter. He straight up calls her. Yeah. Um, he writes a letter to Barney and encloses a che- a generous check for all of the kind treatment at the asylum oh. or in in incarceration. Oh, that's very sweet, actually. <laughs> and he writes a letter to Chilton, basically saying, "I will find you, and you will die." <laughs> so in the in the film, um, and this was on that episode of Page to Screen that we watched. Mm-hmm. The filmmakers thought a threatening letter isn't quite cinematic enough. What if we had him, like, stalk Chilton? And then the filmmakers were like, what if we did it in the Caribbean so that we could take a vacation on the company dime? <laughs> so they went to the Bahamas to shoot one scene. But no no plastic surgery. It's just it's just Anthony Hopkins in a bad wig and a white suit. Ugh, that wig is so it's bad. It's so bad. But also, it's very clearly supposed to be a wig, so I don't mind it being bad. It's not like he was going to borrow one of Buffalo Bill's. Oh. Do you ever see any of the articles of clothing that he creates from the women's skin? No. Not fully. There's a famous scene uh, that was even parodied, I want to say, in Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. One of the early the Kevin Smith scenes. movies, the tucking scene. Yeah. Because um, I remember Jay did it like in front of the Quickie Mart in... Like, Clerks 2 or some shit. Um, But in that scene, there's one close-up as he's applying makeup to his own face. And you can see an outline of different skin. So I think he's wearing somebody else's scalp. Yes. In that scene, we don't see any of the other articles of clothing. Yeah. Um, Throughout the book, they're describing how he's escalating. And, like, one of the first things Lecter says after the two-story house thing is he's like, he's going to go to scalping next. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the next victim that they find. Kimberly has been scalped. Okay. Um, and the, um, 
the articles of clothing are not described. Um, the the skin suit is is not described. It's it's one of those things where it's worse that they don't describe it because you start imagining it. But they you can tell that he did his research, uh, the author, because he's describing specific techniques that he's using in the sewing and what he had to do and how he had to cure it to make it work. And again, having just watched that little um, thing from the TV show, they talk about how it's an um, implied part of, or it's uh, one of the serial killers that inspired him was Ed Gein. Gein. Gein? I think it's Gein. Oh. Uh, One of the, the guy who had my I don't know, why are we showing respect to a man who made skin suits out of people? Yeah, well, he didn't make skin suits, he made uh, lampshades and other things. In the um, movie, does Buffalo Bill have the ritual before he gets up to flaying them, um, where he watches the video of his mother in the pageant? No, there's not a lot of Bill and his methods. Um, We really only see him cultivating the moths. We see him uh, getting Catherine to lotion up, and we see him abducting Catherine. And we see him tucking and posing in front of the mirror saying, I'd fuck me. And then it's just the scene with Clarice, the final encounter. Okay. So um, another major change in the from the book to the movie is that it wasn't a house. It was a warehouse. It was a storefront with attached living quarters. Um, it's implied that he killed, he was working for a woman, um, basically apprenticing and like sewing for her. And it's implied that they went on a, they went on a trip to Florida where it is implied that he killed her. Mm. Um, so everything went to him when he came back. And that's when he started, um, torturing and murdering women in the basement because it's not, it's not just the skin suit. That's something that occurs to him later, but there are vague descriptions of him trapping people in back rooms and sealing up the doors and just listening to them scream. It's described like a labyrinth. Yeah. Um, and it, it feels like one in the film as well. Yeah. Um, I wish I could remember her name, but she the the seamstress that he worked for is mentioned in the movie. Berdine. Berdine. Her, her last, last name. name. Berdine is her last name. Okay, different character then. Oh, okay. Um, Because the first victim... Worked for her as well. Yes. Oh, so it's not a different character, it's just a different name. Yeah. It might have been Berdine. I don't remember. Um, but Clarice gets her address, goes there, and finds Bill. Yes. And he's like, oh no, she hasn't lived here for years. I got the place two years ago. I might have her son's phone number here. But he's like panicking. Like he's got the flop sweats going. Um, yeah. That scene is... Uh, in the book, um, she, he is not, the names he gives are all JG. Like the name, like she's looking for a John Grant. Mm-hmm. The name he gives her is another JG name. I don't remember. It's like John Graham. Yeah, something like that. And so when he turns around, a moth falls out of his coat and that's how she recognizes who it is. I think she sees one. Yeah. And realizes it. And, he and he's asking it. questions like, oh, does the FBI have more information? Did they get, like, fingerprints or something? Like, he's not subtle at all. In, yeah. his, in his fucking deep-ass voice, too, that I can't even begin to imitate. Like, and he, It's such a creepy portrayal, especially in that scene. It's very creepy. He's terrifying. So, something you said earlier 
they don't show in the book any of the actual like skin suits being made, right? You said? No, you you hear him you see him making the model for the suit where he's doing the um I don't know what I don't know what the term is for, but it's the muslin like, version of it where he creates the pattern. Oh yeah, pattern or template or yeah. something like that. And it, the only time you see it is at the final scene when he has turned the lights off. He puts some of the articles on when he's chasing Clarice. Oh. And it is only described as he had worn some of the garments he created and Clarice wished he hadn't. So we don't see any of that in the film. Something I thought was interesting is there's a lot that we don't see. When we watch that TV show earlier, Gene Hackman was originally set to produce and play Lecter. Yes. And he dropped out because of the it was too violent. And as we're discussing it, I'm realizing there's not a lot of actual scene violence. So much of the violence is implied or we see the aftermath of, if we see it at all. The worst it gets is the autopsy scene. But even then, the camera kind of avoids the body until Clarice is looking at it directly, and then it's just short shots. And the making of the skin suit, we don't see any of that. There's only one scene where we see Lecter bite somebody, and it looks fake. It looks like he's kissing him, and then there's just blood pouring out. But you see the aftermath of it. You see him wearing this dude's face later. Yeah. So I, th- I thought it was very interesting in, in an era in which Saw movies have happened. Yeah. Where people were dropping out of this for being too violent when so much of it's in your head. It's the... A lot of the violence is by secondhand description. Like, when they're describing when Lecter has killed the woman, they describe it as she leaned over him to check something, like his blood pressure, and it was like... He broke her jaw to get at her tongue, and his heart rate never went over 85. Yeah, no, that's word for word in the film. But yeah, like a lot of it, like when they they have him in that building in Tennessee, and he escapes, and the one cop is strung up on American flag streamers like Jesus Christ with his guts flayed out. We don't see any of the violence. We just see that aftermath, and it's still fucking terrifying. It's, it's worse. It is a lot of... A lot of the problem with modern media today, uh, if I may be very pretentious, is that it doesn't let the audience draw its own conclusions. It has to show you everything. Like, we need to know why Indiana Jones got his hat. And You say that's a complaint about media today, and yeah. Last Crusade came out in the 80s. Yeah. Also, I don't think it's that bad in the Indiana Jones. Oh, but no, like, that's a decent Mar- In, like, Marvel movies. Or, like, Death on the Nile. We need to know how he, why he wears a mustache. Yeah, yeah, his mustache needed a bad... No, it fucking didn't need a fucking yes. backstory. Fucking Kenneth Branagh. <laughs> um, but, like, especially in horror. Yes. Especially as horror as, has evolved over the years. Like like I said, the Saw movies are hostile. You're leaving yeah. nothing to the imagination. It's, in the moment, sickening when you see a scalpel cut into somebody who's still alive and they're screaming and the blood's pouring out and they have to reach into their own chest cavity to get the key for the mousetrap that's on their head that's going to rip their jaw off. All that like, crazy contraption shit, in the moment, yeah. is... It's visceral. Yeah. But nothing sticks with you like what your imagination can do. Exactly. And I think that's why, like, the movies that scare us as kids, the horror movies specifically that scare us as kids, the most are the ones that we close our eyes during. 
Yes. And it, it took me until my teenage years before I was actually watching horror movies and seeing, oh, I see how they did that. This doesn't scare me anymore. Because when I was a kid and something would happen, I'd close my eyes and then I'd just hear the audio. And my brain fills it in with something way worse than you're seeing. It's like when we went to Penhurst. I am a notorious scaredy cat. I don't like spooky things. Um, we went to the Penhurst Asylum tour and... In beautiful Spring City, Pennsylvania. And you... <laughs> An hour after I found out my great-grandmother worked there. <laughs> <laughs> Not when it was the torture chamber after the Are reform. we sure? <laughs> uh, so you distracted me by showing me how everything was made mm -hmm. or how they were producing the different effects. And that calmed me down. Yeah. And I think that's why this is so, like you said, exactly why this is so scary is that you don't know how he did it. You're just left to imagine. Yeah. And like I said, the one time we see Lecter actually commit an act of violence he's biting the one dude's face off. And it just looks like... It, you can tell his face isn't touching the other dude's face. You can tell by the way his jaw is, even though the camera's behind him, you can see his jaw is not in a position to be biting. He's just holding his face up against this dude and going... Rrr, rrr, rrr. And then I think he kills another guard with the billy club, but that happens again off screen, and you just see him drop the club and blood spray. He and that's is, worse than the biting. Yeah, he's described as the the violence of his of that escape um, is interesting because it's only like two pages the chapter where he escapes, and it's all set to music basically. Like in his head, he's playing his music. And he's like, everything has slowed down and he's calm. And he's like, okay, he's going to come over here now and we're going to do X. And then once I do X, but it's like the things that he, he's like choreographing it like a, a dance instructor. But the things that he's choreographing are violence. It's, it's like a cranked up to 11 version of that scene from the Robert Downey Jones Sherlock movie where he's boxing. Yes. Yeah. I actually liked that movie. Yes, it was it was fun. Guy Ritchie's a good director. He's we very should, good at we action. We should find a Guy Ritchie movie to do. Oh. <laughs> we'll find a terrible one, I'm sure. Um, but no, it's funny that you mentioned the music there, because in the film version of that scene, he has a personal radio. Yes, he's been given that as a concession. And he is just vibing to the music when it's... Like, he's still covered in blood, vibing to the music when it comes time to, okay... That guy's crawling away. I'm going to need to scalp his face off, wear it as my own, pretend to be him. So they send me out on the ambulance. I'll dump his body on the elevator first and then make the elevator move around to freak everyone out. Like, you know, but he, you don't, he doesn't say it. It's not narrated. Yeah. He just does it. What's interesting is Bill's body count that we're aware of is seven? I think six in the movie. Because Catherine is sixth, right? She's the sixth victim. We know of five five bodies have been found and Raspale. Okay. That's all we have in the film. In the... Yeah, in the book, it's the five girls, Catherine, who they're assuming is dead because he is, go he is escalating. He's going to kill her that day unless... Like, he is literally preparing to kill her when Clarice shows up. Mm -hmm. Um, and then Respail, or not Respail, um, Klaus. So, yeah. seven. 
right? Five, six, six, six. that we're aware of, possibly more. Well, you said the uh, seamstress lady too, right? Yes, but that's implied. We don't know. Oh, okay. Oh, he uh, he killed his grandparents, so eight. Yeah, we get no backstory. You get a whole chapter. After he's dead, you get a whole explanation. It's, like, from the point of view of the media, and it's, like, them digging up all the information about him. And he was put in jail for killing his grandparents at 12. Uh, he was released, and that's where he got his sewing skills when he was in prison. Um, and that's also... It, that's also where his issues with, um, he thinks he's gay, but it's implied that that's because he was raped violently in prison a lot. And so he starts killing. It's, it's very much implied that there are victims we don't know about that belong to him. Um, the, the specific body count that we're aware of in the book is seven. Okay. Cause it's the five victims um, so not too much different. When you cut his backstory, you're going to cut yeah. a few bodies out. But then you've got Hannibal, who in one scene has a body count half the, half the level of Buffalo Bill, and the FBI isn't after him. I mean, they are, but they aren't. Yeah. Um, it's, just, it's interesting because it's like we're all horrified by what Buffalo Bill is doing, but what Hannibal does is worse in a short time in a shorter time frame yeah like they're definitely both active at the same time yeah just and yet, longer and everyone thinks that like when you remember the movie you remember buffalo bill and you remember it being horrifying and awful and he's such a monster and then everyone's like oh hannibal's so cool yeah which is such a weird take yeah like i think it's because he's smart and calm it's it's the Sherlock, that, the BBC like, Sherlock. There, there's a part deep down inside of all of us that wants to be able to get away with crimes because we're so smart. Yeah. And I think that might be why a lot of people kind of flocked towards that character and wanted to see more of that character. Like, even though he got caught. Yeah. It's still, oh, he escaped using his cannibalism to get out like making the mask of the guy it's that american obsession with serial killers you know that documentary we just watched made it seem like that wasn't really a thing i watched a different supplement as well um can't remember the name of it that also brought up that serial killers because they're real are like the next level of american horror because no one believes in vampires anymore. No one believes in werewolves. People who believe in ghosts don't believe ghosts are going to actually hurt us. Unless you're Zach Bagans. Unless you're Zach Bagans who got like attacked by a bull demon and now needs to wear special glasses when he taunts ghosts in abandoned <sighs> comedy clubs. Oh, Zach, you ghost-hunting himbo. <laughs> but serial killers are real. They're documented. Ed Gein was a real dude. Bundy was a real dude. And there's that kind of, like, almost glorification of a serial killer that has happened in the last 10, 15 years because of, like, investigation discovery shows on true crime, true crime podcasts. Like, there was that Ted Bundy, Ted Bundy show that came out last year. The Dahmer show. The Dahmer show. Like, there's so much media on these guys that we've 
kind of forgotten as a society that they're terrible monsters to an extent. It's... Yeah, like, the whole true crime industry is horrifying. Um, because, like, the... Specifically with the Dahmer show, like, they didn't reach out to any of the victims. Yeah. And every time that you do something like this, you do a show about Dahmer or whatever, you're gonna get people coming to the family of the victims, like, hey, do you want to do interviews? And they're like, no, you're re-traumatizing us. Stop! Yeah. And, like, we've had two of those shows about Candy, the woman that murdered um, the other woman in Wisconsin over an affair. There was the Jessica Biel one, and there's a new one with um, Scarlet Witch. I can't remember. Elizabeth Olsen. Like, every, every murder that's a little bit abnormal... Like, and that's not to say murder is normal, but... I mean, it's in America, it is. Yeah. Like, anything that's more than just heat-of-the-moment gun violence gets two or three episodes of various true crime shows about it. Podcast episodes, all this stuff keeps happening. And, I mean, Dexter and Hannibal were on the air at the same time. Yeah. Like, it's a fucking problem? It's almost like, as a society, because we in America have decided that we can't do anything about gun violence, we're going to hyper-focus on the other kinds of violence? Yeah. And that's not to say that, let's assume, Buffalo Bill was a real serial killer in the 80s and 90s. Sensationalizing him and his five victims before he was shot dead by the FBI, while writing off a guy who shoots 60 people from the window of a hotel as a lone wolf with a mental health issue. Mm-hmm. Like, they're two different things, two different problems, two different causes. Both need to be addressed, and we're refusing to address one of them. Yeah. The... Wow, I didn't mean to get on my soapbox here. No, you're correct. <laughs> your, your soapbox is correct. It's just, this is an excellent movie. It, it really is. It's well put together. It's fascinating. It's a it's a good thriller. It's so engrossing. Like, there's a reason it swept the Oscars that year. Yeah. It's just... It's a symptom of a larger problem. Yeah. And, and I don't... I, I don't want to say that... This film and the way it was produced... Has worsened the problem either. Because there yeah. is nothing redeemable about Lecter... The only kind of cheer we get for him is that he's going to fuck up that Chilton guy, but Chilton's just a dick. Yeah. We don't get any of his backstory either in the film. He's just a douchebag towards Clarice. Yeah, like, he doesn't... Like, he's an asshole, and he should be fired, but he doesn't deserve to be murdered and cannibalized, you know? Yeah. No one deserves to be murdered and cannibalized. Nothing about Lecter is really glorified. He's intelligent, but his intelligence is terrifying and weaponized. One of the things that Chilton says to Hannibal is when he's laying out that there is no deal from Senator Martin is that he's like, do you really think the media is going to be sympathetic to you when you let five women die? Because Hannibal knows. Yeah. He's known from the beginning. He could have stopped it. But because he's bored and wants to have fun with Clarice, he's not giving... The option. Here, he's not giving her the answer. Mm -hmm. Because he's got to play his mind games. 
exactly. she even calls him out for it at one point. Just yeah. like, we're out of time. Another body is about to drop. We need an answer now. You need to tell me. And all he does is give her the case file back. Yeah. After forcing her to re-traumatize herself with the story with the lamps. Oh, that's a thing. Do you, is there any more context to the lambs and why that specific day is so traumatizing to her? She, she tells a story about waking up in the middle of the night, hearing the lambs screaming, sneaking into the barn, uh, seeing that they're being slaughtered. And then she takes one and tries to save just one, but it was too heavy. In is the, there more than that? Yes. In the book, she, both of her parents are, have... No, her mom is still alive at this point, but her mom couldn't keep the whole family together, so they sent her to live with her aunt and uncle. And she was like, I loved it. I was having a blast. It was a great time, and I made, I was bonding with this horse. And she, we didn't know her name, but we called her, I called her Hannah. Turns out she found out that the farm that her aunt and uncle ran was where they fed out slaughter horses. Oh... And the day she wakes up and hears the lambs screaming when they're slaughtering the lambs, that's her final straw. That's when she runs away with the horse. Oh. It has nothing to do... The lambs are just the the final straw, so to speak. She uses that as a distraction. And I think that's more interesting because she's using the suffering of other beings, of beings that are literally known as innocent, to cover her own escape. Because she can't handle it. And she doesn't want her friend to die. Oh. And I think that's why she feels so guilty. And that's why it's such a traumatic memory for her. Yeah, because, like, the story in the film is traumatic. But it's not quite as deep as that. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And she actually succeeds in saving the horse. Because she she made it to another farm. Um, like... I think they said, I think she said she was like eight hours away. Like she rode as long as she could Mm because she was like 12 at this point. Yeah. If that old. And, um, she gets to this other farm and talks to the farmer and the farmer's like agreeing with her while the farmer's wife is in the house calling the cops. Basically like there's a runaway kid, come get her. And she doesn't go back to her aunt and uncle. She goes basically into the institution, uh, the, not the institution, the system basically. Yeah. She, she becomes a ward of the state. Yeah. But the horse ends up going to her orphanage her orphanage or wherever she lives and lives out the end of its days. Oh. Like, the horse has just died recently when the book starts. That's almost sweeter than her trying to rescue one lamb and being unsuccessful. Like, she gets picked up immediately, and that lamb does not make it. Yeah. It's interesting when you look at, like, you can compare the, the story in the book about her saving the horse to, and in a sense, sacrificing the lambs. Um, Because she, obviously, she's a child. That's not how that works. But she doesn't know that when you're 12. You're like, I'm going to save them. It's fine. And her getting the horse out but leaving those screaming lambs behind, like, I I think that shapes her her character a little bit more. The other thing that's really interesting is that the final line of the book, when she's... Uh, chilling in a beach house in Chesapeake having implied sex. <laughs> With the bug guy? 
the last line of the book is, but the face on the pillow, rosy in the firelight, is certainly that of Clarice Starling, and she sleeps deeply, sweetly, in the silence of the lambs. Because she kind of answered Lecter's question. For now, the lambs are silent. She yeah. saved Catherine. And she doesn't return in the sequels, because they couldn't afford Jodie Foster in 2002. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think that's about all I had. Um, we can talk about the death of the American heartland, but I don't know how much that plays in the novel. <laughs> um, I mean, you can... I feel like a lot of, like, like with Great Gatsby, you can map different things onto... Tennessee Williams would fucking love this book. Oh my god, you're right. He could just map, like, okay, you got Jodie Foster as the New South, and you got... Um, all of the victims is the old South, and you got Jane Gum as the machinery of capitalism and progress. And you've got Hannibal Lecter as the rich elite feeding over everything. Other note I had, I don't have much more on the death of the American Heartland. I just wrote that down as a, maybe we can get into it. Um, the only other thing I wrote down was, I never noticed there are multiple swastikas in Bill's house. Oh... Yeah, that makes sense because he was in prison as a child. Yeah, I I'd never noticed that before. One of them's on a poster in the background, and I can't remember what the poster says, but it looks like some fascist shit. And the other one I want to say is like a swastika on a bedspread in the basement. It's very little, but I don't appreciate them taking a transcoded character and associating him with the uh, group that obliterated decades of trans history in the 30s. Yay! Thanks, Hollywood. Maybe Glad had a point. <laughs> <laughs> so, do we recommend the book and or the movie? The movie, absolutely. I, I also recommend the book. It's interesting, and it does give you more of Buffalo Bill and James Gum. And uh, Clarice as well. And Clarice and everyone. It Lecter. gives you more of everyone. Yeah, it, it feels like not much changed as far as the plot or story from what I could tell. Just more in-depth looks into the characters. Yeah, they simplified a lot for the movie, which you have to, but they still kept the important elements. Yeah, it seems like they adapted it pretty well. Like, they pretty on the nose. They definitely succeeded in a way that it feels like Death on the Nile did not. <laughs> so shit that movie was so bad <laughs> well you brought up earlier that there were this movie had originally a different um Lecter yeah they they wanted Gene Hackman to play Lecter um John Demi also looked at Michelle Pfeiffer to play Clarice so you know Michelle Pfeiffer was in a Batman? lot of movies. Are we going to watch Batman? No, Damn I'm it. not figuring out what Batman I would need to read for that. <laughs> There's another movie based on a book that Michelle Pfeiffer is in, and she does get naked. Hold on, let me see if I can guess. <laughs> Michelle Pfeiffer filmography Midsummer Night's Dream? I mean, I'm down for that one. <laughs> Prince uh, of Egypt? <laughs> I'm going to make you read the Bible? No, I'm not reading the Bible. You've tried so many times. The Last Temptation of Christ is based on a novel, not the Bible. <laughs> the novel's based on the Bible. Um, Dangerous Liaisons? No. 
The Witches of Eastwick? Uh, that is Roald Dahl, isn't it? Fucking is it? Or am I confusing it with a different Roald Dahl? Oh, John Updike novel. Ah. We can add that one to the list, but no, that's not what I'm thinking of. I'm thinking of one that's more recent. Grease 2? No, absolutely not. <laughs> you don't want to hear high school kids sing about reproduction? No, not particularly. Uh, no, I am thinking of the seminal classic Stardust by Neil Gaiman. When we met, this was your favorite movie. It was my favorite movie. It is a delight. I enjoy it a lot. It is very different from the book. (laughs) Well, in about two weeks' time, we'll hear all about how that's different. But until then, uh, I'm Billy Beck. You can find me on the internet at Mr. Billy Beck, MR Billy Beck on Instagram, Twitter, Letterboxd. Letterboxd. I was like, (laughs) what's the movie website? Letterboxd and TikTok. Uh, I am Cody Beck. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Pretty Special, P-R-I-T-T-Y-S-P-E-S-H-Y-L and U-L, depending on which site you're on. Uh, you can also find the pod at Soon Major Pod on Twitter. That's our show. <laughs> I was trying to think of a clever Hannibal Lecter quote and I couldn't come up I with got, one. I don't even know what song I'm going to fade out with. <laughs> it's going to be like Baby Shark or something stupid. <laughs> it's got to be like the... Uh, hang on. Let me go to the escape. Oh, fuck, yeah. What's he listening to when uh, when he's doing the escape thing? I'll find I'll find that out. I'll find that out. I'll throw that in here. Holy shit, we went an hour and a half. <laughs>